Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast. And today we are doing something a little different. We are taking a deep dive on an individual album, and uh, we're going to tackle one of my favorite albums of all time. It is X's Under the Big Black Sun. And I want to open up by just reading an excerpt from... Rolling Stone's 1982 four-star review of the album, because I think it probably provides a synopsis of this band that I've never really been able to articulate as well as this. The uh, At the time, this is, this is July 1982, it said, America needs to hear this album. It's been many years since the country has germinated a group with so strikingly original a sound, yet one that, in fact, draws upon many native elements. What sets X apart is their... U- Unique approach to vocal harmony. John Doe and Exine Cervenka have given rock a new twist. Their voices slither over, under, and around each other, sometimes gliding in unison or striking a perfect interval, sometimes forking into fractural, fractured atonality. The intricate, organic way they thread their voices recalls the Jefferson Airplane at their bold, early best, and then some. Yeah, that's a... It's a I mean, other than the Jefferson Airplane analogy, which... Uh, you know, doesn't age as well. Uh, that's kind of it. I mean, they were this weird band that, um, you know, for lack of a better, you know, just had like four disparate parts that came together perfectly. And their first two albums, this, this, their third album is Under the Big Black Sun, which is also their major label debut. But it, it uh, their first two albums, Los Angeles and Wild Gift, were both on Slash, which was a indie label in Los Angeles that had a um, affiliated fanzine also called Slash. It was kind of the uh, de facto punk label. In fact, I think most of the bands on in 1981's uh, Decline of Western Civilization were on Slash. The publisher of Slash was featured in the movie, and um, it was kind of the backbone of, of the punk scene back in uh, the late seventies, early eighties, but, yeah. um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that little, that clip from Rolling Stone that you just read is kind of what you've wanted to say about this band forever. Not that you couldn't articulate that or, or even write it yourself if you really sat down to do it. But, um, you know, I think this is a, a, a truly American band and a band that I, uh, you know, if anyone listens to our pod regularly, that, um, is your favorite American band and you know certainly one of mine and, and Christian's favorite bands in general. Um, I'm excited to kind of do this episode in terms of like, uh, you know, we've sort of decided to every few episodes take a deep dive on an album that we love and, and go a little deeper and, and each of us kind of picking those albums. So this is certainly a great first choice on your part. And, um, you know, I think just thinking back and, and you know, obviously I'm, I'm pretty young in 1982, so... Um, I'm probably, gosh, uh, in the first grade mode or second grade. Yeah. Yeah, Five. And so, um, let's go back though in the time machine real quick and, and kind of give maybe a brief history of the band, but also, you know, we're in the height of, of Reagan era, cold war America post uh, late seventies. Is this when sort of a morning in America was, was happening or is this still the the seventies hangover? No, this is, um, this is when we're waking up to morning in America um, you know, it's just starting to sort of rectify itself after the, you know, slash and burn 70s. Although, you know, it famously, you know, 81, 82 
in New York City are the most uh, the highest crime numbers in history uh, of the city. You know, it's a burned out husk, and as is Los Angeles. I was going to say, Angeles I imagine is, on the other on the West Coast, Los Angeles, home of X, is, is going to be a similar uh, crime ridden shit. Yeah. And they had, um, you know, far be it for, you know, people on the West Coast to be political, but Ronald Reagan came from California, and they had, uh, they had also produced a fellow by the name of Richard Nixon. So it is, you know, this is, the politics in Los Angeles are certainly, or on the West Coast, possibly a little less nuanced, but there was, you know, these, um, you know, this Nixon-Reagan thing was a continuum out there. I mean, they... Um, you know, they got rid of Nixon and, and Reagan was governor of California, at, at, you know, before he was president of the United States. So, you know, this is this is them telling us, you know, beware of this guy, um, you know, behind the facade is is a nasty bastard. And um, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting uh, take. I was not super political at this point. I'm, you know, 12, 11, 12 years old. Um, but at the same time, you know, those, they, they weren't particularly subtle. So, you know, when I heard these, uh, you know, when I heard the sort of political, um, cries coming from this kind of music, it wasn't like you had to be a PhD candidate to understand, um, you know, uh, the messaging. It was, it was pretty thing. And, but one of the things, and I've said this before, um, about the punk scene in Los Angeles is that it became, a hardcore scene. It became the Orange County scene. It became the you know, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, um, TSOL kind of thing. But it started off with, you know, the Germs and X and, you know, a bunch of, yeah, but also a bunch of bands that came from East LA, like the Plugs and the Eyes and, you know, bands that, um, you know, Gun Club, um, bands that weren't really doing like loud and fast necessarily. It was more of a, it was almost more of an art scene. If kind of like the York, late seventies New York scene. I mean that. You, Correct. You know, we always it's talk about eclectic. punk, and then you think about Talking Heads and television. You're like, wait a minute. And Blondie. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah, I mean, so it yeah it had that it definitely had that um, you know broader spectrum and and sort of coalesced into a very you know angry masculine young. Um, but this was you know I mean obviously X is a uh, you know at the you know the front of the band are a married couple and or at least for the first couple records. Uh, this was their third album, as I mentioned, and it was their first major label release. It, they were signed to Elektra uh, by of by Ray Manzarek of all people, who uh, was the keyboardist for The Doors, um, but a very smart guy, had his ear to the ground, and uh, kind of loved this punk thing that was coming out of L.A. So he signs X. He thinks they're the greatest American band in history, and produces their first four albums: their their first two on Slash and their first two on Elektra. Um, but it's kind of hard to understand, you know, for people to understand that X was integrated into the punk scene because they didn't sound like punk bands that, as we think of it now, they had a no, very, you know, they were starting to lean country and Americana, but they were really, you know, poets and writers beforehand. I will, you know, I'll give you the origin story very briefly and then, you know, we'll talk. But, uh, you know, John Doe is, a, uh, John Doe and X are both East Coast um, kids He's that from Baltimore, migrated right? west. He's from Baltimore. She's from, I think, Tampa. Yeah, you know, she's from Florida. Um, you know, he went to Antioch, dropped out, moved west. Um, starts a band with Billy Zoom, who uh, was an interesting character. He's, um, you know, a tinkerer. Uh, he's actually really a gifted engineer. He 
Um, you know, he's he owns a, a guitar amplifier TV repair joint and um, can kind of build anything, fix anything. Um, but he was also a session guitarist who came from a musical family in Illinois. And, um, you know, his dad was a big band a horn player or woodwind player. And, um, you know, he can pick up anything and play it uh, according to his uh, cohorts and, and acts. I mean, he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal musician. He had played very early on with Gene Vincent. Um, he he plays on Etta James records. Wow. I mean, he was... I actually didn't know, you know that. <laughs> and, he, he's, and he's older. So, um, you know, it's not huge difference now but he's you know 10 years older than Xene he's you know seven years older than John Doe um so he and John Doe start a band John meets Xene at a poetry um salon kind of a group uh that shares poetry and uh you know she starts going to band practice with him and you know she's a great writer and uh she inspires him to be a better writer, and, and they start writing songs together, and that's how X became X. Um, DJ Bonebreak comes over. He had played briefly with the Germs, but he was in a band called The Eyes, and um, and that's X. That that locks up the. Uh, so you've got the, John you know, Doe bass vocals, songwriting, Xene vocals, songwriting, uh, Billy on Billy Zoom on guitar, and, and DJ Bonebreak on on the kit right on the back end. Correct. Yeah, and and Billy Zoom really on anything else they felt like throwing at him. Um, you know, on this album in particular, he uh, he has a kind of a melancholy uh, sax solo uh, that he plays. Uh, Rayman Zarek actually plays keyboards on this, as well as having been the producer. So it's you know it's a weird group, and and you know that um, you know the the taboo of being on a major label is there, but it's not as pronounced yet because there just aren't as many opportunities. I mean, this is around the time... You mean you have probably the founding, the brain trust behind the doors promoting this band too, you know? It's just like... Yeah. It's not like it's I mean, as much as Jim Morrison is the face of the Doors, he's a you know a buffoon who's dead at this point. And Rayman Zarek really, I think, by all accounts, was kind of the, the man behind the group. And and, uh, and you've got a guy who... who probably has sway within the industry just for the fact that he was a member of the Doors. And, you know, things I've heard of him, heard him say in the past were kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, laugh about it now or, or kind of make fun of some of the naivety. Like, but, you know, the, the 60s people were looking for some sort of revolution and, and some sort of statement a lot of times. Um, you know, a lot of that went away. But, but you know... X had that to him, you know, he, he heard mm-hmm. what they were saying. It was faster. It was a little, um, grittier than, than, you know, than what the doors were doing or other people like that, but less jazz influence and stuff like that. But it was, it was, uh, political, like you said, but also just talked about working class, talked about America. And I think, you know, both Los Angeles and wild gift are their first two records. They get a lot of press, um, and a lot of, you know, best albums of the decade lists and, and, um, retrospectively, yeah. Yeah, retrospectively, absolutely, 100%, sorry. And, and I think people who, who gravitate towards, you know, punk-leaning or, or, or alternative or indie, whatever you want to call it, music in general, um, no X or love X, you know, but it's, it's a minority for sure. I think it's a band that, like... It's a cult. Yeah, it really is. It's, I mean, even the replacements who, you know, I don't 
think everybody who's into cool music loves the replacements, but those that do do. But I even think their audience is just a lot wider than X's. X is a band that I feel like, well, you know, the unheard music, right? Um, mm-hmm. A song title by them. And, and I think this album in particular, you, you kind of nailed a couple of things that that review nailed, but it's their major label debut. They don't lose the sound they have on the first two albums by any means. They definitely broaden it and, and bring more, more into it. And, and I know you're going to go into kind of some of the history of the album, but what a weirdly unique band. I mean, I think the fact that uh, John Doe, having read his book, you know, came from sort of working world Baltimore, um, had a little bit of that, like, you know, blue collar, chip on his shoulder, songwriting style. I think L.A. in general, different than New York, always had a penchant for sort of the 50s and, and cowboy culture a little bit, you know, and, and there was always that sort of cow punky rockabilly thing going on there even the aesthetics of you know pompadours and cuff jeans yeah and everything starts in 1950 right and so like i i find that this band really like encompassed a lot of that stuff like that ended up being splintered later on into say old country or or, uh punk or singer songwriter stuff or whatever it was you know yeah, they wanted to make a record that was equal parts, you know, Iggy and the Stooges and and uh, you know Merle Haggard. Um, but that the you know one of the funnier things that that um, you know occurred to me as uh, you know as we were talking about this, um, you know, one band that I have never ever ever seen them compared to that is almost has you know in a weird way I'll backdoor them in. Um, think about like seeing think about the visuals of Cheap Trick, right? Yeah. Two weird guys and two hot guys, right? And it's like... The front of the album cover, the back of the album cover. (laughs) Yeah, and it's kind of weird. Like, X doesn't have that, like, you know, know, McDLT kind of hot on one side, cold on the other. But they are four people that don't look like they're in the same band. Um, But they all have a distinction. Like, they all have their own style, and they've maintained that, and they maintain that style throughout. Um, but if you, you know, if you see Xene and, and Billy Zoom, I mean, they make perfect sense together because you've seen them together forever, but they make no sense together if you were picking out, out of a lineup. Right. Uh, and I find, you know, I mean, Cheap Trick is kind of the, you know, it's kind of a highly stylized, non-stylized band. And that's what I would think, I, that's where the comparison to X comes from. Um, yeah, no, definitely. And I think, um, you know, in general, I, just nobody sounds like this band, you know? And, and I don't know. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say that, you know, their first four records are probably all four-star records, you know? Oh, yeah. um, That's and, not a limb. You know, they're all really good. But I think this is the one that, that I, I'm really glad you picked it. I know it's one of your favorites, but I think this is really the one that if I was to say, like, listen to X, if you really want to get the essence of the band – this is the this is why this album is so you know kind of important. And, um, do you want to talk about 1982 in general, or do you want to talk about kind of the his, the history of this album? Well, let's let's talk about the landscape in '82, and then I'll come back to the specifics yeah. of the album because it's a very uh, particular story that informs this record. So in 1982, we have we've kind of listed out some of the the singles, and we mentioned before this is Reagan. Um, America's taking the kind of U-turn from the the, uh, the malaise of the late 70s, early 80s into what's soon to be, uh, you know, morning in America, but still the height of the Cold War. 
also you you've talked a lot about this and i was again young but i benefited just by having older siblings yourself and, and um our older sisters of having things like mcv on a lot and, and music and the radio on because you know you guys were teenagers obviously but um really kind of surprisingly and this may not sound super eclectic to some people but surprisingly top 40 list i mean we just have kind of the top 13 i'm going to pick out a couple here um eye of the tiger not that surprising but you know a huge song for me as a kid um pretty bad song when you go back to it rosanna from uh toto but then you've got stuff like you know hurt so good john cougar who was just making his big his thing. first his first top 10 hit Right, and this is not John Mellencamp. This is John Cougar, um, mm-hmm. same guy, but but uh, back before he changed his name. You've got aging people like Steve Miller Band from the '70s, you know, doing Abracadabra, kind of you know, synthing it out in the '80s, and then you've got some really kind of cool new wave stuff like the Human League, Don't You Want Me, you know, which is like mm-hmm. I, they just sound like from different planets, you know. Hurts so good, well, yeah. and Don't You Want Me are from different planets, right? And at that point, they were on the radio at the same time. Yeah. So, it, you know, you've got the dying breed, um, obviously didn't die, but, uh, you know, you've got Fleetwood Mac, Steve Miller, Crosby, Stills, and Nash in the top 10. Along with um, the Daz Band and Soft Cell. Well, Daz Band was, uh, you know, was a funk band. Yeah, they were like um, a Motown band. Yeah, sorry, funk, yeah. Yeah. And then Soft Cell, which and was... Then, uh, Soft Cell, which was like a, a gay British synth disco band, band. <laughs> doing it, doing a great cover of. Uh, and here's a little fun fact: um, if you didn't know the original Tainted Love, um, and I apologize, I will not. I can't remember the woman's name, but um, the woman who sang the original uh, Tainted Love became T. Re- Mark Boland's backup singer and his wife. Oh, okay. Um, she was a Motown artist and. Um, you know, you've got Human League, and that's a that's a sound that is you know really that's brand new. new. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is uh, um, at this point they're on the retreat down the charts with "Don't You Want Me." It had already been a number one song, but it is you know that and "Tainted Love." I mean, that's those sounded like they came from Mars, um, and then wasted and then on the way by Crosby, Stills and Nash. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's it's a weird time, and you know, I've said this. A, a number of times to y'all, but uh, this is before radio really conglomerated and there are still independent stations. And I'm not talking about college stations. I'm talking about, you know, the WBCNs of the world and, and you know, around the country. It was, you know, people, hits were made re- a lot of times regionally. So, you know, they're playing this a ton in Pittsburgh and then suddenly it spreads to Cleveland and then, you know, somebody get this, hits the charts. And, you know, so you have this very eclectic, um, you know, seventies into late into early eighties, uh, before again, before it became very corporatized and then the formats became very siloed. Um, and the same was true on MTV. MTV was, uh, a, a channel in search of content. They did not, um, come to air with a lot of people making, certainly a lot of American acts making videos, which is why the likes of, um, Human League, um, soft cell, Duran Duran, um, you know, Adam and the Ants even, that's why they were on heavy rotation in America because it was more, because they had top of the pops, they had Eurovision song contest, they had, um, you know, uh, Tony Wilson's show up in Manchester. There were outlets for, for which bands needed, uh, an advertising reel for their for their songs, yeah. and so they made short films and 
you know, that was really the crossover. Before that, you know, as someone who went back and forth to England a lot, you, they were very segregated markets, and it often took, you know, a year to two years for a hit in England to become a hit in America and vice versa. You know, I'd, they'd come over and be like, oh, Human League's huge. And they'd be like, that was two years ago. And we'd, I'd go over there and they'd be like, the Fame soundtrack's number one. I'm like, that was three years ago. You know, I do remember just, that. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely remember having the delays and then, um, you know, or vice versa. Like people would try, you know, your cousins and stuff would come over from England and then try and, and buy stuff early because it was stuff mm-hmm. they couldn't get over there and vice versa. And I would do the same. And that's how I, you know, I mean, that's funny because that's how I bonded with a lot of my friends when I went to my fourth high school. I, you know, I had X and I had, you know, Smith's uh, and Joy Division and all these records that I had purchased in in England. And, uh, you know, I showed up at school and and a lot of people hadn't heard those yet. They were still imports in the U.S. And so anyway, that that's a digression from uh, Under the Big Black Sun discussion. Well, I'm going to name check a couple other things that are out because it is an interesting year, much more interesting year than I thought. So in these album episodes, we're going to kind of look at what was out that year. So we're looking at the pop charts, obviously, but also just kind of some other random um, albums as well. So, I mean, this is the year that um, Bruce Springsteen kind of retreats into, uh, you know, his bedroom with a four track and does Nebraska, which I always think is, is kind of an, a, a really weird um, album to do right before Born in the USA, which was his, his smash hit. You've got um, 1999 by Prince, uh, you know, instant mm-hmm. classic. On the punk world and kind of the underground world, you, you have, you know, Bad Brains first album came out in 1982. And you were talking about some of the like aggressive, faster stuff. Um, Bad Brains, uh, you know, all black, uh, Rastafarian, hardcore slash reggae band from D.C. Uh, Flipper, as the uh, album came out, um, the the self-titled, or this is, not, you know, that album. Um, you had, I think, The Replacements, Mod, uh, Take Out the Trash is 82 as well. So you, and uh, Descendants, uh, Milo Goes to College is uh, is this year too. So really? you had... Yeah, you had a lot of more stuff than I thought. And then weird stuff like The Cure's Pornography, you know? Another mm-hmm. one where, like, Robert Smith, uh, who was kind of more poppy initially, then goes into kind of more, uh, you know, really kind of scenic, you know, almost like proggy stuff. So it's it's a really weird year for music. Well, the other big crossover, and this was, uh, you know, this was, of course, famously uh, the year that, uh, and I say that somewhat jokingly, uh, that the Who decided they were going to do their farewell tour, oh. um, and so the number first five thousand. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that was this was number one, and it was serious. They were really going to break up. Um, so, and they took the Clash with them on tour, That's right. and the Clash Combat uh, Rock. put out Combat Rock yeah. that year, which is you know controversial among punks as to whether or not they sold out. Blah blah blah. Uh, but the Clash were on the same record label as Michael Jackson at that point. Um, you know, so they were trying to sell records, get big, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and so it was a, yeah, you're right. It was a very eclectic um, year. And, uh, you know, it felt like got, there was a shift, you know, like there was things changing. I mean, and, and it's, you know, I can't say that it felt like it didn't feel like that in real time. And it probably didn't even feel like that in real time to you either. But looking back at that musical landscape, I do think there are those years where, you know, like we talked about Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Human League. I mean, it's just a weird chart and it's two yeah. very different sounds. You know, the old guard is kind of um, trying to hold on and, and still doing so to some degree. Um, and then you've got kind of a whole new sound. And, and you know, 
I also think it's really safe to say X doesn't fit into anything we just mentioned. <laughs> no, again, yeah, they, but they did get a lot. They did get a fair amount of MTV play because Hungry Wolf uh, had a uh, had a uh, video, and you know, I watched it this afternoon. I watched it this morning, and um, you know, the the thing I most remember, and it's it's you know, funny how visuals really. Uh, take you back, but I just remember that overhead shot of of DJ Bonebreak just slant, you know, smacking the toms you know, and that drum break. And, but in the drum break, and then you know, it's like he just, you know, cont- he's hit, you know do- doing his drum, you know, hitting the toms uh, as hard as he can, and then you get Billy Zoom, you know, with that slide up the neck and uh, John Doe kicking back in, and and it's. Basically, the song is the drums, guitar, and bass being are playing the same thing, and it's it's so it's very tribal and uh, very cool. But it's it's a you know it's a pretty big departure from the rest of the album, um, although it fits perfectly uh, as the lead single. But the you know so I'll get back into the actual album, which is um, you know written in a very sort of traumatic period. Uh, for the band and particularly for Exine Cervanka, um, they were doing a celebratory homecoming um, show at, at uh, the Whiskey uh, in LA, and Exine's sister and you know closest comrade, best friend, um, was killed by a drunk driver on the ride to the show uh, at the corner of Santa Monica and Vine. Um, she's uh, on a date with Steve, oddly enough, on a date with Steve Naive from uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, uh, the keyboard player, he survived the crash. She did not. Um, and, uh, you know, she finds out uh, after she comes off stage at the Whiskey, and this album is largely written about losing her sister and, you know, the trauma that, you know, goes into losing a loved one. Also, you know, I don't know to what degree, but it, it winds up um, ending John Doe and Exine's marriage as well. So this is a divorce album and a uh, you know a loss album. Um, it's uh, and it, it's it's you know for you know some of the beautiful poetry that's on this record and in their catalog. There's also some really on the nose stuff. If you listen to the song, please come back to me. I mean, it's you know playing in Cleveland on a Wednesday night, you know, I'm breaking crying down on the, the floor. Bathroom, yeah. And, the yeah. and, you know, our father breaks down at the funeral home. Yeah. Um, those are not, you know, draped in imagery. Those are on the nose things that happen. And, uh, but there is also some great, you know, sort of more imagistic, um, uh, you know, sort of tributes to the sister, um, you know, from under the big black sun itself, the the song, the title track. Um, you know, you get, if it isn't men, it's death. It's the same old testament. At the cross, her station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping, where my man extended hung, driven with nails to wood, smoking one. <laughs> and then she goes into the you know smoking one drink. hand, looking for a drink, yeah. drink in the other hand, which I always loved that. I fucking love that. That little phrasing is so good in that too. I mean, it's an album and I I think, you know, a a lot of people look back on as kind of, I think one of the things just for those of you who aren't super familiar with X, but those of you who are know this and it's, it's very rare for a band to have two singers kind of work the way Xene and and John Doe do, um, both to have been married and then, you know, also, um, 
you know, divorced and, and, and they just have a, a and, really cool kind of uh, exchange and singing. I mean, there's certainly songs like the one you just mentioned that one takes the lead on. And, and a lot of times that's the case, but, um, but they both are always, always singing. And, but I think this album is very Xene heavy and in a really good way. It's her record. Yeah. It's her record. Definitely. And it, it you know, I mean, it's funny cause we were, uh, I'll bring up another analogy, uh, another musical analogy in a minute. But there is, you know, there are times when they sing together, and, and uh, you know, their songs are very. I mean, their their voices are very raw. And but there are times they come together in the same way that like Grand Parsons and Emmylou Harris come together. Yeah, albeit really those harmonic. two have much more beautiful voices. But in 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 a there's a there's a warmth and an understanding and a familiarity to it that cannot be replicated by two professionals um you know totally you have agree. to have experience with one another in order to understand you know how these harmonies are made and i think that's um you know i think that's what made this band so special uh i think it's also uh you know we were uh yeah i mentioned before this is this follows by about four months richard and linda thompson's shoot out the lights which was the one album I recall from my youth that Rolling Stone gave five stars to. Right, um, another uh, breakup album. Yeah, and it, 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 you know, it, but you know, kind of a similar way in which, like, they're not, they shouldn't work together, but it, it, their stuff works so beautifully together because it feels like history rather than professionalism. Yeah, there's an intimacy there that's uh, that's just unique, and they know when to kind of to come in and even the, the times the voices don't match up or harmonically and not that I, I know much about vocal pairings, but it just works with these guys. Um, should we hear something and then kind of talk sure. about just cool? Which, uh, do you want to do under the big black sun or? Of course I do. All right, let's do that. We'll do the title track. Back to the brother, brother, brother pod, and uh, today is Win and I, and we're kind of doing an inaugural episode on um, on album deep dives. So uh, each of the brothers will grab an album, and, and we'll go a little deeper than we normally do. Um, I know we, we do dedicate episodes to, to records sometimes and, and bands, but we're, we're kind of trying out a format that we're excited about, and, and really, you know, going deep on some of our favorites. And, and Wins, uh, being the eldest brother, uh, his first pick is X Under the Big Black Sun. Um, his favorite band, um, one of Christian and I's favorite bands, and uh, 
and this is, I think, uh, my favorite album, and obviously yours. But um, how did so you, you came to X in '82? We were living in Corning, New York, um, and you caught it via radio and MTV. So that's how you were turned on to this band. Um, what format were you? Were you buying vinyl? Were you? You certainly weren't. This is not a streaming band, so. No, no. This is a this is a cassette. Is this a tape this off the radio or an actual cassette? Did you? Uh, no, it? this is an actual cassette. I went out and bought it, and this is a band that I'd read about, and um, you know, this is back when people were putting out an album a year. Um, you know, I had read about them, but I had not heard them, um, and then I finally heard Hungry Wolf, and that was enough, and went and bought it, and it you know wore it out, and this is the you know weirdly I think probably the year after, I mean, I know this is the year after MTV started, but it is also about a year after the Walkman came out. And the Walkman at that point was sort of prohibitively expensive at like maybe 150 bucks, which in $81 is about, you know, probably the same as, you know, paying 1500 bucks now would be. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's an investment, but it was, you know, it was the first time you could listen to, you know, that you listen to music, you know, where nobody else knew what you were listening to. And I was listening to this stuff on the bus to school and, you know, other people were blasting, you know, REO Speedwagon and Asia and Loverboy and, you know, to their credit, Go-Go's. But, uh, yeah, this was kind of my record. Um, and you weren't, you weren't rocking out to air supply at that point. I was not, I was not, um, I was really, really, uh, put off by like the soft rock of that era, you know, the Joey Scarboroughs and the air supplies and, and, uh, it just made no sense to me at all. Um, yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, I think I came to X, you bought me Los Angeles on vinyl actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got that it was, you know, the, the Christmas that you bought me a, a ton of cool music and, and I was, I believe in, in fourth grade. And, and so I had Los Angeles and then, um, in 87, weirdly, because you did play this album a lot, I'd heard it, um, I think I was kind of more prone to the faster, sort of hardcore, more aggressive, kind of macho-y punk stuff because it was it was just trying to rebel, you know? And it seemed more in your face at the time to say, like, you know, fuck Yeah, it was more associated with, with uh, skateboarding, too. Yeah, and I was in the skateboarding, and a lot of that music was there. But the... <laughs> The uh, there the famous show or not so famous show they made a movie out of but Johnny Depp's first TV show Twenty One Jump Street in eighty seven had an episode about them going undercover and hanging out with street toughs, and um, the soundtrack was actually uh, under the Big Black Sun for that episode and you know I'm sure some producer out in Los Angeles or whoever tracked that soundtrack was like oh we're putting this album on and it kind of got me back in or not back into it but kind of introduced me to the album again like I'd heard it through you and then mm-hmm. you know I probably you know either took your old cassette or bought it myself but i too had it on cassette forever and um and that was kind of how i was introduced to it and then you know obviously sort of went back and but it became an album early on like i think because it was portable and i had it on cassette that it's definitely the the x album that i i'm most familiar with even though i'm familiar with all of them yeah and weirdly that you know the follow-up uh you know, more fun in the new world became like a summer album for me the next year. Um, you know, up there with like Purple Rain and the Violent Femmes. Um, 
it was, uh, you know, I introduced a bunch of people to it, and it was back when you didn't really, you know, necessarily, or people who didn't really care about music or didn't follow it as as manically as I did, um, you know, did, weren't discriminatory. So I would play Purple Rain, and I would play X, and so people thought X was as big as, you know, people thought X was, you know, more fun in the new world, it was a big record where we were spending summer. So it was kind of fun. Um, but that said, um, you know, this is also a band that was trying to get big and, and it, you know, you didn't realize that in real time. Um, but they were, you know, they were signed to Elektra. They were produced by Ray Manzarek. They're the second song on Los Angeles, oddly enough, is a Doors cover, Soul yep. Kitchen. Um, and so it, you know, this, you know, I don't think Los Angeles and Wild Gift were an attempt to get big, but I think this was an attempt. I think Hungry Wolf, uh, they tried to make it a hit. Um, you know, they covered uh, Breathless for a Richard Gere um, remake of the Godard um, movie Breathless in '84, and that was the, uh, you know, that was the theme song. And you know, sadly, X's biggest hit is a cover of Wild Thing that they used in uh, Major League, the, um, you know, the comedy with, like, Corbin Burnson and, and uh, you know, Wesley Snipes and, and um, who was the star of it? I uh, guess it was... Charlie uh, Sheen. Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And so it was Charlie Sheen's walk-on music out of the bullpen. Um, so that was the biggest hit they ever had. And um, I don't know. And, it was I mean, a, it's safe it, to say, just, under the Big Black Sun... I think was critically acclaimed, obviously, and um, or it's not. It's, it's absolutely the reality of the album. This was their major label debut. It bombed. If you're looking at um, charts or, or yeah, I think it, it peaked at you know maybe seven. It got on to seventy six. I saw on the Billboard charts, but also uh, yeah, their highest charting record. Yeah, album charts, and then. Um, but in terms of breaking into the mainstream, not happening. Um, but definitely a critically acclaimed album when it came out. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it, the odd thing about uh, X2 is that they got divorced and stayed together as a band, um, which is uh, a nifty trick, um, which I can imagine. Sounds, I do remember seeing, just as a brief aside, I do remember seeing X, um, you know, in, <laughs> just poorly booked at a uh, at a boat show in Boston when I was in high school at the Bayside really? Expo <laughs> and uh, yeah they were the they were the headliners that evening not a huge draw um, but I do remember also Exine being about mm, seven or eight months pregnant um, and at the time didn't know um, you know who the father was or who Vigo Mortensen was but Vigo Mortensen um, and Exine had a child Right. back then and 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 uh so that's uh that's the baby that was the uh, you know but she was performing you know with a with it, it a very pregnant state um this is when uh tony gilkison and and uh dave alvin had taken over from billy zoom uh, who'd gone back to tinkering with things but it was you know i mean what a weird you know talk about you know it's sort of like the puppet show on spinal tap um uh chapter of of you know the last chapters of spinal tap it it, it really you know x at the boat show at the bayside expo in Quincy. <laughs> um you know just not not i'm sure what they what they dreamed of yeah but they were hoping they, you know for... they leave a long legacy i think a, a very storied legacy and i think that you know they're it, it speaks for itself i think oh, definitely they i mean a band didn't worth have the even career they seeing... wanted but they had a great career 
Yeah. And a band worth seeing even today. I think they still bring it and they're great. Um, in terms of this album, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I saw them two years ago and I saw them with a friend of mine who's a friend of Xenes. And, um, so, uh, Billy Zoom played, but he played sitting down the entire evening. Uh, he's a 75-year-old man at this point. And, um, you know, went backstage and, and uh, you know, had a glass of wine with Xene, and, and Billy was sound asleep. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it, hardly the rock star lifestyle that um, they came up, I think, wanting to live, but it's, uh, they're still a great band, and they still sound phenomenal live. They haven't, I, I think... You know, it's always my assertion that, you know, you can't really lose your voice if you never strained your voice. And because they always sung in their own natural register, they they sound exactly the same as they used to. And they're they're fantastic. Yeah, no, they're still really great. And I actually got to um, chat with John Doe when I was in Austin and and uh, and actually just thank him. You know, it's one of the rare times Mm -hmm. that I've like you know, gone up to an artist and just been like, Hey, I really like loved your music growing up. It's awesome. You know, I love the X and everything mm-hmm. you do. And, and he was just such a real like nice guy. And, and I normally, you know, either try and leave people alone or just say hello or something, you know, but, um, and he was with DJ bone break and doing a solo thing. It was the, the John Doe uh, trio, but, um, mm-hmm. but you know, they played a bunch of songs and a bunch off this album actually, um, you know, including hungry wolf, obviously. And, and, uh, and the have nots, which was really great and really, and they were, yeah. they were great. And I've gotten to see X, um, via you and I went a few years back in, in Boston. And then I, we saw their acoustic show at the bottom line too, which was awesome. But this album in general, graduated from high school. Yeah, that's right. Um, 1995. Yeah. You've got 11 songs clocking in at 42 minutes. Um, just around 42 minutes. I think the entire album, you know, as far as, you know, I know this is one of your favorites, but is there, I mean, this to me is a pretty well sequenced album. It, everything kind of just hits and goes, but with some slower tracks as well. Like, what are, what are your faves? Um, my favorite, my favorite song that they ever did, and one of my favorites, you know, one of my favorite songs of all time is the Have Nots. It's a, uh, you know, it's um, it's one of those songs that I never somehow after all these years have never learned all the words to, and also. Um, at the same time, you know, just always look forward to that break in the song where they just start name checking shitty bars in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that you first and, went to with your it, father and then visited in your, uh, and now and still go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, shout out to the frolic room. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it, there are these weird bars in, in Los Angeles that are kind of open all day and all night and, you know, given that the people out there have a different, you know, sort of work day there's always people in them and it's um it's also a place where you know people go out with uh, massive dreams and those dreams get dashed and they don't leave so there's a uh, you know there's a great history of of drinking and of bars in LA great dive town um and uh they name check a lot of them but there's that you know those great lines in there about you know how does it feel to have your own bottle of booze behind the bar yeah you know to play cards while the with the barmaids while they work it's um you know it's just a it, it that you know so much of their you know admittedly um and famously they you know they attributed a lot of their influence lyrically to you know people like Charles Bukowski and and Raymond Chandler that sort of grit of LA you know the, the grime under the sunshine um, yeah, they're so good at thing. peeling back the underbelly. And also, you know, 
I think something that we kind of joke about sometimes with like a Bruce Springsteen or something, the working class hero, they kind of tell it like it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's it's no, a, there's not, there's not a lot of heroism in this working no, class it's, it's, hero it's, shit. You know, these are alcoholic tales and and uh, people that are, are pretty um, miserable, but also like you know, they kind of. I mean, I think a lot of it is even political to some point. They're making a statement sometimes, but not in a righteous way. It's it's X never felt above anything, you know. They felt of everything they sang about in a weird right. way. Um, Even the later stuff, you know, I mean, I mean, more fun in the new world. I don't think it was later stuff, but that's a very political song. Uh, See yeah. how we are is obviously a very political song, and a song that I think is still really, really good, even though, you know, it wasn't you know during their absolute pinnacle. Um, See how we are is a really good song. That's a great song. Yeah, no, and it's been covered a lot too. And I mean, I think yeah, this album in general, I listened to it like three times this morning before we recorded, just because I. I wanted to refresh it, but it was just really easy to listen to and, you know, pop on again. And it kind of just, it, I mean, Hungry Wolf and Motel Room in My Bed are two of the best opening track songs, that I think, ever. Mm-hmm. And definitely by X. Um, Come Back to Me, you mentioned, it, which is a really sad, touching song, you know, and, and about her sister and, and matter of fact. But then you've got, you know... Um, how I Learned My Lesson, which is amazing. The Have Nots, which is Great also song. my favorite song. And, and we, we played a minute ago under the Big Black Sun. And and those songs really just lyrically blow me away and, and the phrasing and, and kind of the the kind of just the way they kind of pile on sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know how you would say it, but the way they sort of match imagery with, with uh, you know, tunefulness is, is really great um i think well, there's I think, not a song i would take off of here is there anything you would take off i mean I, and i know we're being generous to this album because we both love it but i mean you, we could be a frank right is there something that you're it, like yeah yeah you know it's um at this point i it all is one you know one uh it, you know the sum of its parts at this point but uh you know no there isn't i mean dancing with tears in my eyes i love um yeah it's a you know it's a song from like 1930 that they yeah I was gonna say that's the one cover and, right yeah um, and then you know real child of hell it may not be the more, most profound song but it still works but you know I, motel room in my bed is is such a great song I mean you're in the middle of you know we we don't know this but you're in the middle of a divorce and you you know the refrain is you know what kind of fool am I I am the married kind yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, that's a great line. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, there's, you know, I think it's a tribute to them as writers that there can be so much um, that is so explicitly stated in a song like Please Come Back to Me um, and Riding with Mary and and then be so oblique and, you know, poetic on something like Under the Big Black Sun. Um, yeah, agreed. So uh, there's nothing really, I mean, I'm with you. I think, you know, dancing with tears in my eyes, it's a two minute song. So it just doesn't matter, you know, and it's not, it's, it's not worth bad. it for the Billy zoom guitar. Totally. Um, and, uh, riding with Mary has actually never been one of my favorites, but I, again, it works on this album so well, it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. And um, it's also the one that, you know, jumped out, uh, you know, when I was listening to it when I was younger, once I'd heard the story about the sister being killed on the road, right. yep. you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, really their breakout show. I mean, that that's part of the tragedy is that this was a massive celebration for the band. They were, and the, and again, this is something, um, you know, I, I, I knew in real time, but you know, it was hard, it's hard to, to encapsulate. This was a band that everybody wanted to succeed. 
um, oh, that every critic was pushing. Every there was a unanimity um, of of opinion that this was a great great band that was doing something wildly different. And the testament to the fact that they did something wildly different, nothing sounds like them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think too, in a weird way, like a lot of bands from that era, you know, The Clash, you know, for, you know, um, even The Cure, you know, a lot of modern bands today mimic that are, are so influenced from that sound that, you know, they had like, like an Interpol and The Cure or something, you know what I mean? It's like, I know they're not carbon copies by any means, but you can hear those influences always, you know? Yes. There's not really a lot of bands I can point to that I can say have X, as, you know what I mean? Have X as kind of the, the foundation. I mean, I know like DNA. bands like the old 97s love them and stuff like that, but the old 97s don't sound like X to me, you know? No, nobody sounds like them. There are definitely, you know, I, I, would, I would venture a guess that Steve Earle's a big X fan. I would venture a guess that, yeah. um, you know, a lot of that, you know, uh, Wilco or Uncle Tupelo were X fans. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I can I can point to that I would imagine were big fans, but yeah, nobody. I mean, the the only band that I remember attempting uh, to sound like X a, a little bit was Eleventh Dream Day out of Chicago in the yep. in the '90s. Um, but again, it was you know you know it was male female uh, dueling leads. There aren't a lot of those kinds of of bands with with two singers and you know i think country is probably where you'd find uh the closest you know and now you know the closest uh hewing um practitioners of that sound but you know there's um you know there's just not a lot of that going on no definitely well um this has been fun it's a good choice on the uh, first one Anything else you wanna you wanna talk about with X's uh, under the big black sun? No, um, I'm gonna go listen to it. Nice. Oh, I'll put it on so four more four more spins myself. Yeah. Do you want to take a quick break and come back and end it like we always do? Yeah, sounds good. Podcast. Today we are, have dissected uh, X's Under the Big Black Sun, which I hope makes you want to listen to it more than it makes you want to avoid it. Um, I would come back and ask the question that we ask at the end of every show, which is, Jared, what are you listening to? Oh, man. I, um, I have been... I've been on a little bit of a drought, so I'm stretching a little bit here. It's not a stretch, actually. I just can't remember if one of you guys talked about it, but I did watch the movie Coda. Um, which I thought was, uh, I can't remember if you, you mentioned it on the pod, but I thought it was very Don't think good. I did. And, uh, and you can fill in the director and the actress cause I know you're, you're probably, Sean Hader. Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, it's a story about um, a woman or a young girl, a teenager who's a gifted singer who comes from a deaf family in, in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and the fishing family. And it, it was well done. You know, unique story, I think, um, had, you know, kind of a, a preciousness in a good way, like didn't, didn't fuck up, you know, um, one mm-hmm. of those that, that really works. And then otherwise, um, I've been listening to a ton of, of podcasts and, and just kind of current events. So I've, I've been enjoying some of the... Um, ringer stuff on what is the uh, ex- what's the podcast that the guy's doing from the Atlantic plain English plain English yeah so he's had a bunch of episodes on the Ukraine uh, crazy or war I should say and um, you know so I've been listening to that and, and then just working a ton so I have not been uh, sorry that's that's a little bit of a boring what are you listening to and then I've been listening to Under the Big Black Sun like you know I'll be listening to that all day so repeat. yeah how about you Ant? Um I've got a few but uh, I do um, on the Ukraine front, want to point out that there's a new front line on PBS uh, as of last night that is really uh, excellent, and um, definitely watch that. Um, Coda, uh, I wanted to just toss my two cents in, which is I like that movie an awful lot. It's very sweet, but not cloying. Yeah. And I watched um, like Belfast last night, which I found cloying. Mm. Um, and also just too too heavy a dose of Van Morrison telling me how to feel. It's like every, you know, it's like a happy scene. So it's like Jackie Wilson, and then it's a pensive scene. It's like, you know, days like this. It's like, ugh. I mean, I'm not a Van Morrison fan to begin with, but yeah, I was gonna say, talk that about like, like they, should, they should just, you know, they should actually just have a big subtitle or a, you know, text across the screen that's like, feel happy, happy song, you know, happy feel, song. yeah. Um, that said, the Forrest uh, Gumping of a soundtrack. Yeah, totally. I like The Tourist a lot on HBO. Um, Jamie Dornan, obviously, also in Belfast. But um, um, this is in Tourist. It's sexy Jamie Dornan Dornan instead of beautiful Jamie Dornan. Um, And uh, so, you know, that was really good. I also, um, for the second time in like a couple months, and this is, uh, hopefully doesn't come off as boastful, but I read a uh, book in one sitting again and it again it, it speaks to the brevity of the book not the uh capability of the reader but um not department of speculation skills <laughs> yeah no department of speculation by jenny ophel um which i guess i imagine came out probably uh more than 10 years ago but it's uh it's an excellent book and um you know it it's it's one of those stylishly written it, she's i believe a poet and um, it comes off as a poetically written um, story of a, of a marriage that is in somewhat of a transitional period. Um, cool. It's called The Department of Speculation. It's a really amazingly well-written, cool I'm book. I'm about to go on um, vacation so, next week, so I might have to download that one for my Kindle. Yeah. Again, you can probably knock it off in the plane ride wherever you're going, even if it's just to Virginia. Um, <laughs> it doesn't take... It took me about an hour and a half to read. Um, so it, it's really, it's good. And you can tell when it, the way it was laid out that there wasn't a whole lot of text. So it's, it's like, you know, every chapter ends with one line on the next page and then goes to the next chapter. Um, but anyway, that is a, I highly recommend that. Um, uh, and so what song do you want to put on the, uh, playlist the so eight trillion go, ten best songs of all time yeah I, i've actually put x songs on before so i'm not going to put an x song on even though we just had a great time talking about x um i'm going to go with um 
a song I, I heard the other day again that I really love from uh, originally from Boston band. I think Emerson is where they kicked off, but um, I'm going with Passion Pit Sleepyhead. Oh, nice! I like that idea. Yeah, um, yeah I'm going to go with. Um, hmm. I'm going to go with. Now I'm a little bit stumped. Um, and it's hard when you're talking about uh, a group that much, and then it's like, oh shit, I gotta actually pick a song now. Yeah, no, I was gonna go with something from 1982, and I think I will. I think I'll go with um, Marshall Crenshaw's "Someday, Some Way." Nice, good, good call. Love that song. Yeah. All right, Me well, uh, this was fun, and we'll be back with another album in a few episodes. Excellent. Talk soon. Talk to you. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.